Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert along with Sports Radio 610's Sean Bajani. And if you're new to the show, welcome to the party. 45 years in journalism between the two of us, over 35 covering sports in the H. And Sean, the Rockets' future might have gotten way better this weekend. And we'll get there in just a second. But as we record Monday evening, my heart is hurting for earthquake victims in the Middle East. And Sean, the Turkish people are close to our hearts because of Alperin Shangun, maybe the best Turkish player ever. It has become a thing here with the Rockets, and I know we've got a lot of Turkish viewers because of it. Yeah, uh, incredible uh, story that's you know continuing to develop uh, in Turkey. Obviously, we're following it really, really closely. Um, the death toll, you know, just continues to rise after the earthquake. And Shangun, I don't know if you saw his tweet earlier, but just describing the immense amount of pain that he's feeling as, um, you know, a citizen of Turkey. It's it's really it's really tough. Tough stuff to read, tough stuff to, to watch and follow, and uh, obviously all the best to uh, everybody affected by it. Yeah, and Turkey, it's also close to my heart because my mom, who passed away three years ago, she housed over 200 exchange students over the last 25 years of her life, and several were Turkish. Her student, Sefer, referred to her as his American mama. Her student, Hatice, has told me that my mom was her best friend, and she dedicated her PhD thesis to her just recently. I'm close friends with her. We communicate regularly. She's actually from Malatya, which is many people have seen. There are buildings crumbling in scenes that look like 9-11 in Malatya, as well as around Turkey and Syria as well. And thankfully, she was in Ankara and her family in Malatya is safe. They evacuated their home. They're staying with relatives. There's no electricity. It's snowing. It's not a good situation. Uh, we've dealt with the no electricity and snowing here in Houston, but this is a whole other thing. This is like 9-11 combined with our freeze here in Houston. And the last count I saw for Turkey, Sean, is at least 2,300 people were killed, uh, 13,000 injured, 6,200 buildings collapsed, 6,200 buildings collapsed, 8,000 people rescued from the rubble. To give people some idea, Turkey is slightly bigger in area, Sean, than Texas but with nearly three times as many people. So there's a connection there between Turkey and Texas, I think. Those numbers are staggering. You get a mental picture in your mind of the devastation and everything that people are going through and having to deal with that. And, you know, earthquakes is one of those things. What do you do? There's not much you can do about it. And I, we, I know we can say, uh, you know, similar things to a lot of natural disasters, and it's so true, but that makes it that much more difficult to deal with. Yeah, the scenes there. Uh, just uh, devastating. And so we send much love to our Turkish friends. And I want to get to maybe a deal that might affect Shane Goon here with the Rockets in just a second. But just a quick reminder that we're approaching a thousand subscribers. We're almost there. So the best way to support us is subscribe and comment on YouTube. You can listen on the run by subscri subscribing on your favorite podcast app as well. And Sean, this Kyrie Irving trade is a massive deal, as Rockets fans know, because the this ups the value of those Nets draft picks. And and I've said it a couple of times on here, but I'll say it with even more conviction right now. The Rockets must package those Nets picks this summer at the latest because the value is at its peak and first-round picks 
lose value faster than a new car getting off a car lot, man. The tough part about this is for me, I, I know what you're saying, and it, it could be an extremely big deal for the Rockets. But, you know, Brooklyn's still, they're in the four seed. I know they were in the two seed, you know, before Durant's injury. I think he's scheduled to come back pretty soon. I, I still think there's so much up in the air with where Brooklyn is at as an organization and whether or not they can make things right with Kevin Durant. We, we felt the same way, you know, when Harden left Brooklyn. Uh, and went to Philadelphia, you, you felt better about those picks. And now that Kyrie has continued to make waves and did so just over the weekend in a flash, he was dealt to Dallas. Now it looks even better. If Durant forces his way out, he just signed a four-year contract extension. I don't know how that's going to work. And if Brooklyn, it's going to be very interesting to see over the course of the next just a few days with the NBA trade line, trade deadline coming up on Thursday, if they decide to try and get better quickly, or if they just kind of ride this thing out with Kevin Durant and try to sell him on the fact that, you know what, you're still a superstar. You were playing at an MVP caliber level and let's see if we can get you some good quality help in the off season. I don't know. I'm not ready to like say, Hey, this is a great, great deal for the Houston Rockets in terms of those future picks, because I'm not certain that it's going to look just the way you think it is yet. Well, the problem with Kevin Durant and what you're saying right there is he just demanded a trade a few months ago, and that was with Kyrie on the roster. Now Kyrie is gone. They, I don't think, have the capital to go out and get another superstar. And Sean, you can go through the last 40 years and you find me a team that's won a championship and you know this guy's going to want to compete for a championship. You find me a team that can do it with just one superstar. They, they, they've lost a lot of draft capital with that trade to the Rockets. So I don't know where you go from here if you're the Nets and, and Kevin Durant. I know, and it's been a while since we've seen a team that has reached that promised land, right, and won an NBA title with, you know, one superstar. I can't even really think. I mean, maybe it was the Mavericks, right, with Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, or did he have help? Was there somebody else that you would deem a superstar on that team? I think that was probably it. Was that like 2011 or something like that when the Mavs last won? Yeah. Go going back, I got the year right. And I, I knew it wasn't that long ago, but I mean, it's been a little bit, you know, more than a decade. So I mean, your point stands. It, it's a great point. I, I don't know that they necessarily have to do that, though. I mean, they've got a little bit of draft. Cap. I mean, look at look at this deal. The fact that you can trade. <laughs> you know, first round picks or just draft picks in general, like six, seven years down the road. I mean, who's to say what kind of deal Brooklyn can put together between now and Thursday or even in the offseason to try and sell Kevin Durant on, hey, you know, give it more time in Brooklyn. We're going to get this deal right. At the end of the day, really, the exodus of Harden, the exodus of now Kyrie Irving is fixing a massive mistake that a lot of people saw coming just a few short years ago when Brooklyn put this super team together that those three combined didn't even play 75 games together in the NBA. I don't think Kyrie and Durant ended up playing maybe 15 games together, it seemed like, or something. And it just never came together. If Brooklyn can find a way to say, hey, this is the deal. You're still Kevin Durant. You're a superstar. You're an MVP caliber player. Let's see what we can do. That's why I'm not ready to flush him down the commode just yet and say they're done and the Rockets picks look that much better. I hear a lot of noise from fans dreaming of trading these picks back to Brooklyn for Kevin Durant, which, you know, is an interesting thought. 
but it's the assumption that James Harden's coming back here. And I'll say, Katie might not be too anxious to get into the James Harden business anymore. And we also have no idea if Harden won't like his situation better in Philadelphia, depending on what happens in the playoffs this year. Plus, I'm not sure, Sean, Kevin Durant should trust the Rockets' current management and their ability to build a winning team with the right veterans. But maybe you throw it all out the window if they luck out at Land Webby. Yeah, maybe I'm being a little bit too positive here in this light. I have really have no reason to be this positive in regards of the Rockets and specifically Tillman Fertitta, who seems to be all in with Rafael Stone. But I have to believe as disastrous as this rebuild has been, I mean, there's not very many rebuilds that are enlightening and eye-opening and positive. I mean, it's a terrible thing for an organization to have to go through. But the Rockets, the way that they've done it, it hasn't gone well. There's been a lot of noise. There's been a lot of dysfunction. I have to believe that the Rockets are going to, if they want to take the next step, move on from Rafael Stone. And if they do that, then I think you ha- you're, you need to anticipate an entirely different type of culture change. And that does not involve bringing a former Rocket by the name of James Harden back into the fold. I don't think the guy's a winning basketball player right now. I think he could have made an argument that he could have been, you know, five, six years ago at his peak. You know, maybe in 2017, 2018. Well, well, you don't say he's a winning basketball player, but he's the number two guy right now. He's the second best player on a team that is the second. Last I checked, they were the number two in the Eastern Conference, and he is leading the NBA in assist. That's fine. You know, he's always been really good at accumulating personal, you know, and individual stats and accolades like that. Brooklyn's number four right now. Uh, Philadelphia is number three. But number two is Milwaukee and Boston is number one in the Eastern Conference. That's as it stands right now. Um, when I say he's not a winning player, can you win a championship with James Harden on your roster? You know, look, this guy's got an excellent opportunity to do so within the Eastern Conference at Philadelphia this season. Boston stands in their way. Milwaukee stands in their way. And you know what? James Harden stands in his own way. You know, similarly to Kyrie Irving, who was talking about contract within a season, and at the time that Brooklyn is trying to contend within the Eastern Conference against Boston, making more waves, now he's out of town and he's in Dallas. He can talk that noise to Mark Cuban and the Dallas Mavericks. James Harden is just a few short weeks removed you know, from making headlines, whether it was his league, a Philly league, an effort to try and, you know, get Harden to sign an extension, whatever the case might have been, you know, you have a guy talking about individual stuff mired in a season in which you have a legitimate opportunity to compete and you're trying to form the very best possible relationship with your head coach, with your other star player, Joel Embiid, and he's making it about himself. You know, so that's what I mean when I say I don't think he's a winning player. And I don't want that type of culture, that type of attitude, that type of mentality back here in the city of Houston when you've, you know, built one of the more skillful and, you know, intriguing rosters right now that is really missing some good veteran pieces and good coaching to take them to the next level. Yeah, you're not going to get much argument with me on Harden. I'm just throwing it out there as devil's advocate. And I know there are people out there. People need to shoot that one, like, dead. Like, bury that thing. Don't even think about it. Like, get over it. You know, it was a great time in Rocket history. It was a lot of fun that, you know what, unfortunately didn't amount to squat. 
you know, that you can hang up in the banners or that you could put in a trophy case. And that's it. It was a great time. It was fun, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't what everybody wanted. And it's certainly not going to be the case now as he comes back, you know, four or five years older. Yeah. But it's, if you can get Kevin Durant with Harden. Why does it have to be both? How much does Durant really want to play with James Harden at this point in his career, being is that it didn't work in Brooklyn? Granted, they had knucklehead Kyrie there. Oh, I, I just, up, you just, you just basically said what I was saying. I don't know if he really wants to get in that business. I'm just saying if James Harden will come back here and Kevin Durant will come in, in that package, all of a sudden, you are an intriguing team, and like it get, like I said, it gets way, 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 way more interesting if Wembyana, you know, lands at number one with the Rockets. I mean, that's you know, you put those three guys together all of a sudden, and you're talking about guys like Jalen Green and Shane Goon and Jabari as maybe your fourth, fifth, sixth best player. One of those guys will probably be out the door in a, in a trade for Kevin Durant, but I, I would still say two of those guys with those three people I just mentioned is a pretty good little roster to have there. I guess I really wouldn't mind Kevin Durant here. We we know he's a, a championship player. He's an MVP caliber player still. Um, whether or not he's able to stay healthy, I, I mean, who knows? And I, I don't necessarily agree with a lot of the things that he says. Um, I, I don't particularly like uh, how he, too, tends to make things about himself. But he's a superstar player. And if you can get that massive buy-in, you put him here. And I'm not saying bring Harden along. If you could get just Durant, I'd be all about it. I don't know really who wouldn't. You couple his knowledge and his just drive to win with this young roster, with Jabari Smith, with Jalen Green. I mean, my gosh, whoever you have left over, I mean, certainly would be those two guaranteed. I don't know what you would have to give up to acquire him. But, I mean, yes, I would be all about that. Um, That makes you better immediately but who's the head coach and you know from your scenario that sounds like a lot of basketball to have to move around and there's only one of them on the court you need a really great coach I don't know who that would be it certainly wasn't Steve Nash and it certainly wasn't Jacques Vaughn to make that happen in Brooklyn so I don't know who the Houston Rockets could get who they have on their radar that would be able to get that kind of a buy-in and build a great culture so quickly that it immediately becomes a championship level squad with Kevin Durant on it. Yeah, you need a coach anyway. Let's just be clear about that. It's, there, there's going to be a new coach. They got to get that right. You know, we just saw what the Texans did with the Miko. You know what the deal is there. But crazy, crazy scenario, Sean. The Nets are five games from the seventh seed. If they end up in a play-in situation and don't make the playoffs, there is a 1% chance that they get the first or second pick in the lottery. And in that scenario, the Rockets have swap rights. Sean, it's an insane scenario. Probably not going to happen, but you're telling me there's a chance? There's always a chance, I guess, until there's (laughs) not, right? I mean, mathematically, we can hope and pray to keep that one alive. I mean, it's certainly, you feel a lot less better uh, about that one than you did at one point in time, the Houston Texans being guaranteed to have that number one overall pick. And we all saw how that turned out. (laughs) I guess, you know, we've talked ourselves in, well, number two is not so bad after all, especially when you get, you know, one of the top, head coaching candidates uh, to sign with the organization like D'Amico Ryans. But, I mean, the Knicks, Atlanta, Chicago, Washington, that's your 7, 8, 9, 10 right now. I mean, those are the only teams that, you know, presumably, if you want to frame it this way, would have to overtake, you know, a Miami, Cleveland, and or Brooklyn for that's 
uh, four, five, six in the Eastern Conference, and I don't really see that happening. It's a matter um, of the Nets dropping, and yeah, know, but somebody, if you drop, you're going to be replaced. And who are you going to be replaced by? Is it going to be the Knicks? Is it going to be the Hawks? You know, who's it going to be? Yeah, well, they just have to drop to seven. You don't care who it is. It's just like yeah. if if they start playing bad without Kyrie, and of course, right now Durant not playing, uh, and and you don't know. If he can stay healthy, I mean, that's a big deal with the guy that's his age and has had his injury history. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. But uh, let's change gears to the Astros uh, because it hasn't gone unnoticed to Astros fans or myself that former Astros beat writer for the Houston Chronicle, Evan Drellick, has a new book out called Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess. And Sean... I got some personal thoughts on this that I'm going to open up with, but you know, I don't know if you know this. Did you know that Evan had 21 appearances as a guest on Houston Sports Talk? Oh, I did not. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. He was a regular when he was yeah. back with the uh, Chronicle, and you know, this is very personal because Evan wasn't just a guest. He, he, we met up for drinks a couple of times. I considered him a friend. And as a proud journalist myself, I have a journalism degree at the University of Missouri. I was very impressed with the stories on the Astros and his writing. It's important to understand that Evan told me back then that the Astros officials tried to get him fired. This is not some new thing that I, he's just making up. They, they went to his editor. It angered me when he told me about that. Still does as a journalist, to be honest with you. But Evan has been open about all that. And I'll circle, you know, just back to that point in a second. But this book, Sean, it's more it's more than the Astros and details of some of the other cheating. However, he's promoted the Astros facets on his social media. And it seems no accident that when it comes out right after the Astros championship, that's a little bit of a, what? It's right after the Astros championship. That's a little bit too on the nose. And Sean, let, let me be open, you know, a little bit to what happened on our show after the Astros cheating scandal. Cause I contacted Evan. I asked him to come on the show, of course. There was an excuse that he couldn't come on the show. I figured he was busy. He's going to circle back to me. He never did. I messaged him about the cheating from the other teams because I started to get angry like the rest of us that this was a witch hunt for the Astros. Evan messaged me back that the Astros crimes were more egregious in so many words. And it's at that point where I started to lose it with Evan and I felt like he lost credibility and maybe let his personal feelings intrude on the truth. And Sean, as I've said before, and I'll repeat now, when I get stopped for a speeding ticket in court, do I get to say, but yeah, there were all these other people going faster than me. You can't find me because even though I broke the law, I didn't break it as badly. That's about the oldest argument in the book, right? I mean, when you get pulled over on the freeway for speeding and your excuse is, hey, I was just keeping up with the flow of traffic, you know, that one officer can only pull one guy over, <laughs> especially on a freeway. And also, just let me give you a little bit something more serious. When you shoot somebody with a gun and kill him on purpose and another guy shoots him 10 times and you shoot him five times, does it matter? that one guy shot him 10 times and one time you're both doing something that you shouldn't be doing. And it's against the law. And just like the Astros and the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Red Sox were all doing stuff that was against the law. It doesn't matter that the Astros were using a bigger gun. No, but I'll take your analogy to a little bit of a different level here. You know, you're talking about uh, shooting somebody 10 times versus once, you know, there's a little bit something extra behind the guy that shoots 
10 times versus just once and accomplishes the same thing. You know, in regards to Evan and what you'd said about him, whether or not um, there is some vitriol, um, some some malice behind his action in terms of what he was saying in the book, the timing that he's pumping his book after another Astros World Series. Look, if, if it's true and, you know, you can kind of corroborate what he's saying in the book in a part of this recent excerpt that has been released in your conversation with him that he shared with you, the Astros met with him and his editors and tried to get him fired. There has to be almost innately some ill will, some bad feelings, some angst against the Houston Astros from that point on. And you can call yourself a professional. You can be as professional as you want. It's incredibly difficult. It's very human and understandable to be able to have to have those and carry those feelings with you. But to have it affect your work and what you do professionally is different. You cannot let it affect your work because he's not writing for the Houston Astros. He's not writing for the Athletic Houston. He's not writing for NBC Boston anymore. You know, like, I don't know what he's, I guess he's with the Athletic now, but whatever. You know, point point still stands. Okay, you just can't let it affect your work and call yourself a professional, you know, at the same time. You're talking out of both sides of your mouth. And so I think that's the problem that a lot of people have with him. And I don't necessarily think he's done the best job of, you know, explaining that situation. And I don't really think he's kind of cared to. I think it's become all about the book. Um, it's easy to say, though, Robert, that, man, look at the timing of this book. It's coming out right after, you know, what, two, three months after the Astros win their second World Series. It's called marketing. You know, I mean, he's he's gone, you know, the way of writing this book, pumping the excerpts out. He's trying to sell books. You know, if it's 20 bucks, 30 bucks a pop, whatever it is, it's marketing. What better time to do it? And he's not trying to appeal to Houston readers or listeners. He's trying to appeal to the rest of America that absolutely hates the Houston Astros. Yeah, he's trying to make money, bottom line. And, you know, it's hard to make money as a journalist. And I get all that. It's just it it you do not seem like you are doing this for all the right reasons because of what happened. And I would say nothing about this if he hadn't messaged me that this was the Astros being more egregious. And and that has been the philosophy of, with all of these people uh, around baseball of like the Astros were more egregious. And I guess my point is we didn't play this game when it was the steroid scandal. Well, this team had 10 guys that did steroids and this team had two guys that did steroids. So we think that the team that 10 guys that did steroids is a lot worse than the team that did two. You know, we were mad at everybody. We were mad at every player that was involved. We were mad, mad at baseball for covering it up. We were mad at the teams for, uh, you know, I don't think the teams took as much hit as they should have, but we were mad at the teams, but this is, you know, you, you don't do this in any other thing in baseball, but we're going to do this with video cheating that it's, it is now more, egregious because one team did it better than the other teams or did it more or did it, you know, whatever. Here's my problem with that is where's the proof in that statement? Where's the proof in that the Astros were more egregious compared to the Yankees, compared to the Red Sox, the Dodgers? It, I, I don't think you can really compare it to anybody because we never got, and by we, I mean the public, never got the full scope, the full scale, the whole story in regard to any other organization in Major League Baseball other than the Astros, they were the poster child of this 
Um, you know, I don't want to call it a witch hunt, but of this investigation by Major League Baseball to get to the bottom of cheating. One guy, Mike Fires. That's the difference in this whole yeah. story. Is there isn't the smoking Mike Fires, so to speak, with other teams. You know, we go. Right. I get back to the gun analogy. There isn't a smoking Mike Fires, and that's been the difference. But yeah, you're right. There, there we do not know what the extent of these other teams cheating because there wasn't the investigation as much as at least it didn't seem like it was as vociferous or as I guess uh, as detailed as it was with the Astros and the Astros were kind of stuck to the wall because of the Mike Fires thing and they had to come out and, and do it the way they did because they were trying to you know say, say we're cooperating we're trying to get out of this as smoothly as we can get out of it and that's what the situation was but you know, you keep going back to the same thing that we've said as Astros fans from day one. The investigation plainly states, and I, I'm tired of talking about it, but I'll say it one more time. The investigation plainly states that Carlos Beltran and Alex Cora walked into the dugout from their positions with other teams, one of those teams being the New York Yankees, and said, you guys need to cheat because everybody else is cheating way harder than you. And we know that he wouldn't know that fact if it wasn't happening with the New York Yankees and, and Carlos Beltran and Alex Cora, I believe, was with the which team at that point? Red Sox. Wasn't it Red Sox? Yeah. Yes. And and the Red Sox were flat out found cheating before the Astros thing even happened with the Apple Watches and what was going on with that. So, like, I, I'm tired of saying the same thing. The Astros fans know what I'm preaching to the – I mean, I feel like we're just talking to the choir, Sean, but – I, I just you and I wanted to get that out there on on Evan. And I personally wanted to say that about Evan, because, you know, I know everybody wants to hate Evan right now if you're an Astros fan. But look, most of what he's done is just reporting and he's trying to get the facts correct. But I feel like the tint of the way he's reported it has been a little bit too Astros centric. And, you know, it's not his fault that Mike Byers was the only one that opened. I don't know if he was trying to get Yankees and Red Sox players and they just wouldn't drop something, the bomb that that Byers did. But at the same time, he did tell me specifically that he thought this was an issue with the Astros because it was more egregious and, and it was the culture that was going on in the Astros organization. And to me, as soon as you make that statement, you lose credibility and everything else that you do, you kind of drop everything, especially knowing, like I said, the other facts about him in the Houston Chronicle. Yeah, and look, uh, you said it. I mean, he didn't handle the reporting side perfectly. And I think what more, what, what's going to incite even more hatred, if possible, you know, on behalf of Houston Astro fans, um, is the fact that you know, in this recent excerpt that he'd released that he tells the story of him going to Major League Baseball officials and saying, hey, I've got this on the Houston Astros, and somebody can corroborate it. What have you heard? And Major League Baseball officials were like, well, we've, you know, we've heard this, that, and the other thing, but nothing like that now. You know, we can't speak certain things, you know, let's see what else, you know, you can bring us, and we'll see what else we can find out, that kind of thing. And it's Houston Astro fans are looking at that like, man, he's going to Major League Baseball officials is kind of like a, a tattletale, so to speak. You know, he's doing this versus, you know, real reporting. And, you know, if he had that to do over again, would he do it differently? Maybe so. Um, but I just found it really interesting in terms of 
the timing. You know, when he decided to hold on to that story and then he gets paired up in an opportunity to work with Ken Rosenthal and then all of a sudden <laughs> things just start clicking, man. Uh, you know, contacts are made, conversations are had, and hey, it's a go-ahead. And just hours before we're going to publish, you know, Mike Fires is ready to talk. And I, I just found that incredibly uh, interesting uh, as part of this piece. The, the one thing that I'm not sure of is, you know, if, if you want, if you're just an average baseball fan, the fan of any other team, Robert, do you think, do you think reading this book we're going to get any closer to the real bottom of the cheating scandal in reading this? Because I don't get that sense. I just think this is going to be a continuous and maybe just another thorn in the side of Astro fans that choose to read this book that, you know what, here's just more hate. Here's just more vitriol against the Houston Astros than anything, instead of it really being a knowledgeable kind of read and figuring anything else out in terms of Major League Baseball. And maybe what they knew that we, uh, the public, are, have not been made privy to yet. Enough with the past. Let's get to the future and let's get to the fun future with the Houston Texans. And Gary Kubiak came out on your station, Sports Radio 610. What do you have to say that struck you about him and D'Amico Ryans? My biggest takeaway, and I thought there was a lot of little interesting nuggets in his conversation within the loop, uh, Monday morning uh, with Landry Locker and John Lopez was that um, in 2006, when D'Amico was drafted by the Houston Texans, I mean, that was a really, really good class um, by the Texans. Um, they, they had a number of players that played many, many years in the NFL. You know, Gary kind of, you know, looked back on that draft class when he was explaining what sort of advice he imparted already on D'Amico upon um, taking the Texans job. And it's that, you know, I want to be here as a resource for you because you and that class came in and were so professional, so diligent, so hardworking that you really made it that much easier on our football team to establish the culture that we wanted in the locker room and on the football field. And so it was almost Gary's like returning the favor, so to speak, um, in so many words. Uh, that's not what he'd said, but in so many words, it was. And I found that to be really, really interesting. I mean, obviously, Gary Kubiak is a big D'Amico guy, and, you know, told stories, you know, about how he and the coaching staff would sit in meeting rooms and just talk about like, oh, my God, this guy, he's going to make a great coach one day. I don't know if he's going to end up doing it, but man, if he does, the sky's the limit for this guy. And here you are, <laughs> you know, just six years in to starting a coaching career with the San Francisco 49ers. Now you're the head coach in the NFL. Gary was obviously very proud of him for that. But I thought one of the most interesting things, Robert, that Gary had said on the football side of things was his upbringing, D'Amico's upbringing. And if you're going to go to work for a Shanahan, like Gary did in Mike Shanahan many years ago, the demand of a Shanahan to their assistant coaches is not just to do your job, but understand the job. If you're a defensive coordinator, you better know the offense like the back of your hand. Go back to our conversation with David Anderson. You can find the clip on the YouTube channel. I put it up there specifically. And David Anderson, I asked him, what, you know, what do you uh, think a defensive guy would know about an offense? He, he obviously doesn't know anything about offense, according to the fans. But, I mean, isn't his job to figure out 
offenses all the time and isn't his job in practice to work against the offense that is Kyle Shanahan's offense. That's what he does. Yes. I mean, in, in look, it, it's nothing really groundbreaking and innovative, I wouldn't think, but it is the way in which you prepare. It is the way in which you collaborate, which was a key word, obviously, in the D'Amico press conference last week, you know, collaboration. But I, I, I think those demands you know, by Shanahan. I mean, the, the Shanahan tree is what it is for a reason. It's obviously very successful and they have a system, a way of, you know, not just uh, in what they teach and coach their players to do, but the way in which they bring their assistants along to disseminate that information to their players, the ability to look at something, understand something, and then convey it, teach it you know, to the players, I, I think is very interesting. And that's something that I would be really excited to learn more about. And I think we will, as D'Amico seems to be very forthright in terms of, you know, the expectations of coaching, the expectations of his players, uh, obviously that he's had over the course of the last two years as one of the top defensive coordinators in the entire league. I'd be really excited to know a lot more about that. And I, I think we will learn more about that in the coming months. Remember when Wade Phillips came to help out the Texans when they were not doing so well under Gary Kubiak and the Texans were having a little bit of defensive issues. And I'm wondering, what did you hear from his conversation? Did Gary act like he would come around to maybe be a sort of surrogate teacher with the coaching staff? Would he have a bigger role than that? Is that, is that something that he addressed? Yeah, I mean, it was. He was asked, um, you know, pretty informally about his participation. It was like, hey, you know, we're anticipating seeing you more at training camps, uh, at this upcoming training camp, whether it be in an unofficial capacity or not. You're here to be a resource for D'Amico, right? And he was said, absolutely, quote, absolutely. And Look, I think this has potential to go a little bit deeper, Robert, because, you know, both of his sons, Clay and Clint, are in the NFL now as coaches, one with Denver uh, this past season, one uh, with Kyle Shanahan in San Francisco. And, you know, look, they're young. They're starting their coaching careers. But, you know, there is strong potential because, look, where there's smoke, there's fire and timing is everything. But if, in fact, one of those one of Gary's sons um, maybe becomes a passing game coordinator or, or an offensive analyst for the Houston Texans and tries to work his way up here under D'Amico Ryans. Maybe it's along with Bobby Slug. Maybe it's, you know, along with somebody else in that Shanahan tree. I don't know. But what Gary's, you know, I don't think ever really come out and said it. He doesn't want to roam the sidelines anymore. He doesn't want to coach, you know, and I think he worries a little bit more about his health nowadays than maybe he used to even five, six years ago, certainly 10 years ago. Um, but when you're one of your sons is working as maybe a confidant, as an advisor or something along the lines in that capacity, he's obviously a great mind. The Kubiak Shanahan tree. Um, is certainly well-proven, very successful over the years in the NFL. I would not be surprised if he becomes increasingly involved as the years go by with the Miko Ryans. And we kind of go back to what we were talking about in our last show in the D'Amico Ryans press conference, post-game sort of presser and, and post-game uh, thoughts. And these guys that the Texans have over the years that were really good resources 
because of D'Amico Ryans back in the fold. You might have J.J. Watt come by to help you out. Andre Johnson. Um, I don't know if Arian, Fo Arian Foster, I feel like, is always angry at somebody. So I don't know if you get an Arian Foster to come back and help you. But all of the guys that D'Amico played with that we respected will be back here in a heartbeat if D'Amico needs him. You get that feeling. David Anderson, we just talked to the other day. I mean, I'd imagine he, he wouldn't mind coming back and, and helping out however he can. But the guys that you really want helping out, the J.J. Watts and the Andre Johnsons and, you know, Kubiak and, and those type of big names and, and big personalities that we know had success, it's a big deal. It's a big yeah. deal. And, you know, to, to that point, uh, you, you kind of refresh my memory on something. Um, during the conversation with Gary Kubiak this morning on Sports Radio 610 was he made mention of this kind of unprompted, like, you know, as much advice as he'd like to give D'Amico right now, he's trying to kind of stay away and give him his space and time and, you know, doesn't want to bother him too much because he's got a lot going on, obviously. But Gary made mention, you know what, D'Amico's probably being tugged a lot right now. And I think what he probably meant by that is maybe by some former players, you know, guys that he used to play with, whether it be Houston, Philadelphia, guys that are interested, guys that have advice. When you take a new job, certainly in this type of role as a head coach or even maybe an offensive coordinator, everybody wants to give you their two cents. Everybody wants to tell you what you should and shouldn't do. Gary had some very good advice for D'Amico, and it was some advice that he was given by somebody unnamed. He didn't mention who, uh, but when he was first hired by Bob McNair years ago as the Texans head coach, and it was, it'll get done. Somebody just told Gary that it'll get done. And Gary was like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> you know, it'll get done. And it wasn't until later, you know, into the, his first season as head coach and maybe towards the end of it that he realized, I get it. Once you step back, settle in, understand the situation, and you are deliberate and patient in your hires that you're making as coordinators or assistant coaches, once you trust the people that you need to develop and establish your culture in a locker room and on the field, once you trust those guys, everything that was swimming in your mind that you were worried about in your early days upon taking the job, they just get done. They calm down because you allow people to do their jobs. And one of the biggest pieces of advice that I think, you know, any any guy that's kind of been there, done that, that can impart any sort of wisdom on a young head coach could give is be patient, talk to people, talk to everybody, make sure you hire the right guys that have the same vision that you had when you took the job. And I, I thought that was probably the best advice that I heard Gary Kubiak offer up for D'Amico Ryans this morning. Good stuff. And before we go, we're going to remind you that we'll do the show on Thursday and that show we're hoping there might be some news as far as Texans coordinators potentially being hired. But if not, there's a little football game that's going on this Sunday. I don't know if anybody heard about it. It's the last football game of the NFL season. We'll talk about that and some other things. And also, Sean, tomorrow, look for a show that we're going to have up with our Houston Cougar experts over with the Scott Holman podcast. Uh, one, if not both of those guys are going to join me and talk about what's going on with the Cougar basketball team. I've Definitely got some thoughts after watching this team for a couple of weeks of where they are in the big picture. Maybe Sean wants to pop in on us, but if he doesn't, 
Uh, it's just going to be me and Scott Holman and the guys with the Scott Holman podcast. But it's it's going to be a quickie, uh, just getting them for a little bit because they're jammed with stuff right now, a lot going on for them. But uh, we're going to get a good 20 minutes in with them talking about what's going on with the Cougars basketball team. And if you missed it, we're also going to talk a little bit about the Big 12 schedule that just came out with Houston Cougars playing some Big 12 teams. Remember, that's happening just a few months from now. Can you believe it, Sean? Surreal, man. The schedule looks fantastic. I mean, maybe don't get used to it, but enjoy the next couple of years of having the likes of Oklahoma and University of Texas on your schedule. I mean, with UT coming into town, um, the atmosphere, I, I, that that was my first go-to, is like the atmosphere at TDECU this upcoming season, not just with UT, but just a Big 12 schedule coming in. I mean, it should be absolutely electric. You might want to get season tickets, just a heads up, because the University of Texas is not going to come in maybe more than one time in the next, I don't know, forever. So if you want to see Texas at TDECU, and we're going to talk about with the guys tomorrow, I'm sure this is going to come up again tomorrow, but uh, you might want to get a, a little season ticket, because if not, it, it ain't going to be cheap to get those tickets, I have a feeling. No, and you know... I... Maybe the best season ticket value in town is your Houston Cougar basketball team, but a close second just because of the absolute fantastic atmosphere um, and just the excitement, you know, moving into a legitimate, bigger, better Power 5 conference next year. Houston football is not far behind. Man, looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to talk. Actual Big 12 teams coming into the city of Houston. I think it changes maybe your whole perception as far as an interest in college football for a lot of people in the Houston area. I hope so. And I hope it changes the perception of the Houston Cougar program for people that maybe aren't fans. You're stuck on your own team where you were at. You know, I, I watch every single Houston Cougar basketball game and I watch every single Missouri Tiger basketball game. And I have an allegiance to both of them and it's great. And I would like to see other people get involved. And I have, I have no degree. I have no diploma. I have no hours paid over on Scott and Holman. I know you do, Sean, but I don't, and I still love my Cougars. You know, the most interesting thing for me is going to be able to watch this basketball program. Look what they've become, you know, in the eight, nine years that Kelvin Sampson has has taken the helm over there. Um, you know, routinely a tournament team to be reckoned with here in the last three, four seasons. And you had a number one team ranked ranked team in the country a couple of times and they certainly seem to be you know on track to maybe be a number one uh you know for a third time this season what's that going to look like when they're routinely facing other top teams within the big 12 every single night uh next season and the year beyond um that that's going to be an interesting follow i'm going to enjoy this season while we can because i think they're legitimate um, but like I told you, it always kind of bothers me when you're the favorite to win it all. Um, that's a big time target on your back. If anybody's well equipped to handle that, it's a Kelvin Sampson coached basketball team. Though. More Cougars tomorrow. Check us out. We're going to be coming at you again. And until we talk to you again, have a great one. Thanks again, Sean. Thanks, man. Enjoy it. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.